Our text this morning comes from Job chapter 20, verses 1 through 29. Here, for this is the word of the Lord. Then Zophar, the Namathite, answered and said, Therefore my thoughts answer me, because of my haste within me. I hear censure that insults me, and out of my understanding a spirit answers me. Do you not know this from of old, since man was planted on earth? That the exalting of the wicked is short, and the joy of the godless, but for a moment. Though his height mount up to the heavens, and his head reach to the clouds, he will perish forever like his own dung. Those who have seen him will say, where is he? He will fly away like a dream and not be found. He will be chased away like a vision of the night. The eye that saw him will see him no more, nor will his place any more behold him. His children will seek the favor of the poor, and his hands will give back his wealth. His bones are full of his youthful vigor, but it will lie down with him in the dust. Though evil is sweet in his mouth, though he hides it under his tongue, though he is loath to let it go and holds it in his mouth, yet his food is turned in his stomach. It is the venom of cobras within him. He swallows down riches and vomits them up again. God casts them out of his belly. He will suck the poison of cobras. The tongue of a viper will kill him. He will not look upon the rivers, the streams flowing with honey and curds. He will give back the fruit of his toil and will not swallow it down. From the profit of his trading, he will get no enjoyment. For he has crushed and abandoned the poor. He has seized a house that he did not build. Because he knew no contentment in his belly, he will not let anything in which he delights escape him. There was nothing left after he had eaten. Therefore, his prosperity will not endure. In the fullness of his sufficiency, he will be in distress. The hand of everyone in misery will come against him. To fill his belly to the full, God will send his burning anger against him and rain it upon him into his body. He will flee from an iron weapon. A bronze arrow will strike him through. It is drawn forth and comes out of his body. The glittering point comes out of his gallbladder. Terrors come upon him. Utter darkness is laid up for his treasures. A fire not fanned will devour him. What is left in his tent will be consumed. The heavens will reveal his iniquity, and the earth will rise up against him. The possessions of his house will be carried away, dragged off in the day of God's wrath. This is the wicked man's portion from God, the heritage decreed for him by God. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. As I read what Job's friends have to say in response to him, I can't help but imagine that as Job was speaking, they were in a group huddle, trying to come up with what the next guy was going to say. Because one, by their responses, it sounds like they weren't listening. And two, their speeches are beginning to sound a lot alike. Zophar's speech sounds a lot like Eliphaz and Bildad's speeches. Zophar appeals to his own authority to speak, much like Eliphaz does in chapters 4 and 5. Zophar appeals to the authority of their religious tradition, 
much like Eliphaz and Bildad has done already in chapters 8 and 15. And this speech turns out to be another sermon on hell, much like Bildad's last speech in chapter 18. At this point, you're probably asking yourself, what is the point? Why all this repetitiveness? And why even consider what Job's friends have to say, especially if we know that they are wrong? Well, because all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. As you consider what Job's friends have to say, though we know they are wrong in their conclusions, there is something we can learn from what they say, for this is indeed God's word. So let us consider our text today. What can we learn from Zophar's quote-unquote sermon on the destiny of the wicked? Well, first, as we are all natural Pharisees, we can learn what not to say to someone who is in a similar predicament as Job was in. Because although they say some truth, yet their problem was misapplication. They ignored Job's context. They were saying that Job was suffering because of his sin. But they were the ones who were sinfully maligning Job, who was God's chosen seed and his chosen servant. Yet some of what Zophar says about God and his wrath against sinners are true. So secondly, what we can learn is that this can be considered a warning for unbelievers if they do not turn from their sin and believe the gospel. Because Zophar's speech does describe the portion of the wicked who reject God in Christ Jesus. Thirdly, we can learn about what Jesus experienced when he took on God's wrath on the cross. Jesus actually experienced this wrath, which Zophar describes. But it was on behalf of sinners, like Job, like his friends, and like all of us. And fourthly, we can learn about the disciples' experience in this world. For if we are God's children, then we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. We will experience some of what Job has experienced in this world and in this age until Christ returns. In our text this morning, Zophar responds to Job after Job responded to Bildad. Bildad told him that he was just experiencing the wrath of God, which he deserved as a due penalty for his sins. Job responded in agreement that he was, in fact, under God's wrath, but the difference is he did not deserve it. He said that he was right in the sight of God, and one day he would be vindicated. And you can tell that Zophar wasn't listening very carefully based on the first few words of his response to Job. He wasn't quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. He says, therefore my thoughts answer me because of my haste within me. In other words, he is saying that his thoughts and his sentiment were so troubled by what Job was saying that he couldn't wait to respond to him. 
He was quick to speak. He didn't care about what Job had to say. He cared more about his own thoughts and his words and what he was about to teach Job. He let his feelings get in the way and he couldn't receive correction. Because he says, I heard censure, that is correction or judgment that insults me. And out of my understanding, a spirit, that is his own troubled spirit, answers me. What is he responding to that made him so upset? Well, Job warned that if his friends continued to pursue and blame him for his suffering, he said, be afraid of the sword, for wrath brings punishment of the sword, that you may know that there is a judgment. Job was saying, you think I am under God's judgment? When in fact you will be for your false accusations. So Zophar counters by describing to him the destiny of the wicked. And guess who Zophar had in mind? He tells him first that the wicked man's prosperity is only for a moment. Secondly, the wicked man's evil will poison him. And thirdly, the wicked man will not escape the day of God's wrath. So first, the wicked man's prosperity is only for a moment. And he argues from tradition, much like Eliphaz and Bildad before him. But he takes it back a bit further. Do you not know this from of old? Going back to the Garden of Eden, when God created man. Since man was placed on earth, that the exalting of the wicked is short, and the joy of the godless, but for a moment. Think of the joy of Eve as she bit into that forbidden fruit and how it only lasted for a moment before shame set in. And we all know from human experience that human happiness and pleasures are short-lived. The joys of this world come and go, especially if human happiness and pleasure become our idols. If these worldly things become our be-all and end-all, if our chief end becomes to glorify myself and enjoy myself forever. If they take the place of God and if they are all that we pursue in life, we will soon find out how quickly they fade away. This is true. This is why he says the exalting, that is the jubilation or the celebration of the wicked, is short in the joy of the godless but for a moment, because their exalting and joy is only found in this world, in the idols that they worship. And just like they are idols, they only last for a moment, but they eventually rust, corrode, and decay. They fade away. Think for yourself about your own idols. And whatever it is that you place in the place of God, you think of Sunday mornings, how many excuses we come up with to replace the worship of God. Whether it is leisure or entertainment, not that these are wrong in themselves, but they eventually become more important than God. Though the wicked man is prideful, his height mount up to the heavens and his head reach to the clouds. This is another way of saying that the wicked thinks too highly of himself. 
And the imagery is reminiscent of when people built the Tower of Babel with its top in the heavens, making themselves out to be God, repeating the same sin of Adam and Eve. But God himself would come down and foil their plans. Because our exalting and our joy is to be found ultimately in God. And that would lead to joy in everything else that we enjoy. But if our joy is not in God, just like the idols we worship, he says, the wicked will perish forever like his own dung. In other words, he will be flushed down the toilet and disintegrate in the septic tank, never to be seen again. They could have been popular. They could have had influence in the world and in the culture. They were probably on the big screen or they received heavy attention and praise one day, but then the next day they are gone. Those who have seen him will say, where is he? He will fly away like a dream and not be found. He will be chased away like a vision of the night. The eye that saw him will see him no more, nor will his place anymore behold him. And the ironic thing is that Job confessed this was his own destiny back in chapter 7. And Zophar continues with his last accusation from chapter 11. Accusing Job of some sort of extortion or injustice when he says his children will seek the favor of the poor and his hands will give back his wealth. All that he stole from the poor when he was a judge will be returned and he will die before his time. His bones are full of his youthful vigor, but it will lie down with him in the dust. Now, when properly applied, much of what Zophar says is true. The wicked man's prosperity, his riches, though it may reach as high as heaven, will be gone soon enough. But we must consider Zophar's misapplication. First, consider that even a hundred years of exalting and finding joy in godlessness is short-lived compared to eternity. So the wicked often live long and healthy lives, worldly speaking, and they spend their lives seeking the pleasures of this life only. And even if they die in old age, it is still short-lived compared to eternity. Eternity never ends, while this life will. Second, as we consider the context, and as it has often been repeated from this pulpit, I think every week since I started this series, Job is not suffering because of his sin. Here we find another false accusation from Zophar. Third, is it true that the wicked always die young and the righteous always prosper into old age? Because who else do we know died young? He was found feasting at a wedding in Cana. He ate and drank wine with sinners and tax collectors. He lived a life of joy and exalting his father until his life was cut short. Jesus died young. He died in his prime. And the joys that he experienced in this life were brief. In fact, he would be known as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And it was not because of his sin. He knew no sin. 
It was because of our sin. Also, we know uh, of many believers in the history of the church, in the church today, whose lives have been cut short, whose joys have been brief. We experience this to some extent when our joys are brief and we experience sorrow suddenly when we lose someone we love or when our lives take a difficult turn. While we feel like we are on top of the world, maybe we've reached the pinnacle of our careers, something happens that reminds us that even this is short-lived. Think of uh, some of our church heroes. Martin Luther died at the age of 62. John Calvin died at the age of 54. J. Gresham Machen one of the founders of our own denomination, died at the age of 55. By today's standards, that is still young. Imagine what they could have done if their lives were extended. Although we don't know the reasons why they were taken so early, but in God's providence and wisdom, He took them home at the right moment. Secondly, The wicked man's evil will poison him. Now he speaks of sin and evil in terms of consumption. Uh, Remember how the first sin, the entrance of evil, came by way of consumption after God prohibited the eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And remember how Paul said that the end of those who reject the cross of Christ will be destruction and that their God is their belly. They live only to consume. They worship their own senses and only seek to satisfy natural sensations such as eating, drinking, and other physical needs. But they have no regard for God nor for spiritual things. And so evil and sin is described here as poison. Similar to how James describes the process of falling into sin. And it begins when each person is tempted, when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. He is self-deceived. Evil is deceptive. It is unnatural. In this case, the body cannot digest it. And like poison, it is destructive and brings forth death. Listen to Zophar as he describes evil and sin as food. Though evil is sweet in his mouth, though he hides it under his tongue, he wants to savor it like a piece of candy or a good scotch that you would swoosh around in your mouth. Though he is loath to let it go and holds it in his mouth, yet his food is turned in his stomach. It is the venom of cobras within him. Evil and sin are deceptive. Notice how it deceived Adam and Eve. Sin and evil promise fullness of life, pleasure and joy, but it can never deliver on those promises. That is why sinners are always going back to it like a dog who goes back to its vomit. And it is unnatural. Most natural elements in the world that we mistake for food uh, give us a bad taste in our mouth so we don't eat it, right? But not evil and sin. Sin tastes sweet. It delights the senses. Eve saw that it was good for food. But when you eat it, It turns in the stomach because it is truly venomous and poisonous. And by the time you realize it, it is too late. 
Sin's effects are already in the process as it produces death in the soul. It tastes good, but it only leads to nausea and vomiting. And he uses the example of the love of money. He swallows down riches and vomits them up again. God casts them out of his belly. This reminds me of Proverbs chapter 20, verse 17, that says, Bread gained by deceit is sweet to a man, but afterward his mouth will be full of gravel. It tastes sweet to give momentary pleasure and joy, but that was to hide its sting, because that same evil will come around to bite him. He will suck the poison of cobras. The tongue of a viper will kill him. Just like the serpent in the Garden of Eden and how he veiled his sting by deceitfully appealing to how sin will fulfill our desires, you will be like God. And Adam and Eve would soon find out that this was a lie. And later this same serpent tried to tempt Jesus to worship him instead of God. He promised him the kingdoms of the world and their glory. But this serpent could never deliver on those promises. That is why the scripture is constantly telling us, do not be deceived. He will not deliver. He is the father of lies. And the taste of his lies is deceptive. This is why the psalmist would say that instead of tasting this evil, rather, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. He is the only one who can deliver on his promises of life and joy. David again praises God. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And although sin tastes good in the moment, there are long-term consequences for evil because it is destructive and it bars man from the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey where the tree of life is and where the river of life is that flows from the throne of God. But the wicked man will not look upon the rivers, the streams flowing with honey and curds. His evil will not be as rewarding as he thought it would be. And it will only come back to bite and kill him. And it will come in the form of the same evil that he committed. It sounds a little like karma at this point. Remember Zophar was accusing Job of taking money from the poor. So he says he will give back the fruit of his toil and will not swallow it down. From the profit of his trading he will get no enjoyment. For he has crushed And abandoned the poor. He has seized a house that he did not build. He is saying he will never live long enough to enjoy the fruits of his dishonest labor. But is this true of Job? Is Job guilty of extortion? Based on biblical evidence, no he is not. Although Zophar is correct in his doctrine of sin its nature and its effects, but he misapplies it to Job. Remember, Job's story is the story of riches to rags, and the consequences of evil described by Zophar sounds awfully close to Job's circumstances. But Zophar's judgment is flawed. He discounts the suffering 
of the innocent. Because Job tasted the sting of death, but it was not because of sin. Just as Jesus would eventually taste the sting of death on the cross by becoming sin for us. Though Jesus never consumed the poison of sin, he died as if he did. But Zophar accuses Job of using his status to steal from the poor, and now he will never enjoy that which he stole. Why? Because thirdly, the wicked man will not escape the day of God's wrath. He was never content with the food or poison in his belly. He was never content with his riches and he was always seeking after more. And he will not let anything in which he delights escape him. His delight and contentment are not found in God and so he can't let go of the world. This is the opposite of the godly man's character and how Paul expressed, For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. But this does not describe the godless and the wicked. They are constantly doing whatever it takes to accumulate and consume more. But they are never satisfied with what they already have. The wicked man ends up miserable anyway and eventually he will end up with nothing. He held down too tightly to his things until there was nothing left. There was nothing left after he had eaten. Therefore, his prosperity will not endure. In the fullness of his sufficiency, he will be in distress. The hand of everyone in misery will come against him. To fill his belly to the full, God will send his burning anger against him and rain upon him into his body. The wicked man cannot escape God's anger and judgment. God's wrath is inescapable. He will flee from an iron weapon such as a sword, only to be pierced by a bronze arrow. Zophar is reminding Job of what he said back in chapter 6. For the arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks their poison. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. Zophar confirms that Job cannot escape the arrows of God. It is drawn forth and comes out of his body. The glittering point comes out of his gallbladder. What imagery here? As the gallbladder or bile represents inner corruption that is exposed and ripped out of him by God's wrath and judgment. And terrors, the king of terrors and the terrors of death and hell come upon him. The judgment of God is a terrible thing. It is a terrible thing. Hell is described as the outer darkness and an unquenchable fire. Here Zophar says that utter darkness is laid up for the wicked man's treasures. A fire not fanned will devour him. What is left in his tent or house will be consumed. Whatever he owns and whatever prosperity he enjoys is only an illusion to blind him of his real condition because he will soon face judgment. How many people we know in this very country are blinded by their prosperity? They think because we are the richest country in the world that we are untouchable. They're blinded to their own misery. And there is no escape. There will be no one to defend him because the heavens will reveal his iniquity and the earth will rise up against him. Back in chapter 16, Job was insisting that he was innocent and said that God was his witness. 
God would be his mediator. But here Zophar says the contrary. He says, no, God will not be his mediator or witness to defend him, but rather creation will unite to prosecute him on the day of judgment. And the possessions of his house will be carried away, dragged off on the day of God's wrath. All that sinful toil was for nothing. So what Zophar is trying to tell Job is that this is what happens to the wicked man. This is the wicked man's portion from God. The heritage decreed for him by God. And it is true. The wicked man's prosperity, if you want to call it that, only lasts for a little while. The wicked man's own sin will poison and kill him. And the wicked man will not escape the day of God's wrath. This is all true for the unbeliever. And it should be taken as a warning for any one of us who have not turned from our distorted and uncontrolled worldly appetites and placed our trust in the only Savior of our souls, Jesus Christ. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. But is this true of Job? All throughout Scripture from the patriarchs to the prophets, God's chosen servants have always suffered some of what Job has suffered here. Because all of God's chosen servants, especially those of the Old Testament, foreshadow His ultimate chosen servant, His only begotten and beloved Son, Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman who will ultimately and finally defeat that deceiving serpent Satan and redeem us from his power and grasp. So as we consider Job's suffering, as we consider the sufferings of Christ, aren't we also to expect some level of suffering, some level of trial or tribulation? What are your expectations as a Christian? After Paul was stoned in Lystra, it says that the disciples were saying to the other disciples that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So we will feel some of what is described here in this text. And it is not at all because we are enemies of God, but it is because we are living in a world that is under judgment and there will always be some collateral damage. Our enjoyments become very little. Our joys are brief. We still sense the evil in others and how it affects our relationships. We still feel discontentment. What or who will be our contentment? Although we are justified and forgiven, we still sense the indwelling sin that corrodes and destroys. We can say with Paul, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? How will we escape the judgment that is coming? 
Because who Zophar describes here, first and foremost, is us. It is us. We've all been guilty of pride. We've all had our heads in the clouds, so to speak, believing that we know better than God. We've all been guilty of storing up our treasures on earth rather than in heaven. We've all been guilty of finding our ultimate joys in the good things that God has given us, but not in God himself. We've all been guilty of covetousness. We've all wanted what our neighbors have. We've all tasted the deceitfully sweet taste of sin. We've all been discontent with our situations and the lot that God has given us. We have not trusted in His sovereignty and providence. Who will deliver us from such a sorrowful state? Who will deliver us from sin's power? Paul says, thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Through Jesus Christ we have been delivered from the penalty of sin and the power of sin. Sin no longer has dominion over God's people and death has lost its sting. Now the question is, are we reflecting God's resurrection power in the world? Is the life of God flowing out of us? What will be our heritage I would say, hide yourself in your only hope of refuge and strength. Run to Christ. For in Christ, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing and the spiritual armor to fight this war against sin and evil. And as He promised, in Christ, you will be victorious. Amen.